This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Human civilization kind of has a habit of trying to eat itself on the regs. So, like, mm-hmm. that's just how we roll, baby. We love to eat ourselves. No, yeah. no, 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 no. We're so tasty. <laughs> What's good? Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of The Newest Olympian. My name is Mike Schuber. I am the titular Newest Olympian. I am a grown man who never read the Percy Jackson books as a kid, but I'm reading them now as an adult because I'm on a quest to determine if this is a book series that we have been sleeping on as a society. And I'm not on this quest alone because this quest also involves me learning things about mythology sometimes. And that is what we are doing in this episode with our very special guest back again to talk more things about how Greek mythology is fascinating and hard to pin down precisely. Precisely. It's Red from Overly Sarcastic Productions. Red, how's it going? Hello, I have a notes file and I'm ready to party. <laughs> <laughs> a party will be had. I'm excited. We are going to be finishing up the book four myths that I slash our patrons had questions about. And then we'll get into the demigod file myths that I slash our patrons had questions about. <laughs> and we will all be wiser and smarter because of it. Now, this is your third time being on the show, meaning you get the third appearance question. I should come Ooh. up with like more profound names for them. But if you had nectar and ambrosia, so a food that would save you and taste like anything and a drink that would save you and taste like anything, I guess I said those in reverse. But if you had nectar and ambrosia, what would they taste like? Because Percy's obviously has got the warm chocolate chip cookie taste for the drink at least. Oh, yeah. But yeah, what would your uh, ideal drink and ideal food be? Oh, that's so fun. I love that. I feel like just in terms of what I tend to go with for the most satisfying drink at any given time, it's always something cold and fruity. Okay, I yeah. love my coffee drinks, but I will be the first to admit they uh, do not function as a drink because they don't stop you from being thirsty. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, almost anything with milk in it, same deal. Like a milkshake, it's delicious. If you're trying to drink that because you're thirsty, you're going to die. Uh, so it tends to be some kind of like smoothie or fruit juice or something. So it would definitely be one of those like mango, like pineapple, tropical smoothie things for the ambrosia, for the nectar. Sorry, the ambrosia is the other one. These two things would clash horribly because the ambrosia would definitely be something chocolatey, mm. something like really like fudgy, like a good chocolate cake with really good chocolate buttercream. Ooh, Probably ooh. the kind that my mom makes. Hey, <laughs> um, wonderful. Hey. Well, I think you're in luck because I don't recall, except for maybe in book one, usually you kind of take one or the other. I yeah. don't think it's usually like have some nectar, oh, and also have some ambrosia. So I think if you've got your your fruit covered and your 
chocolate decadence covered, I think you're safe. And that's what I used to do when I would go to a Froyo place in college. That was like a big Mm. thing to do near us. I would go in and I'd either be like, all right, I'm getting the fruity flavor and throwing a bunch of fruit on top of it. Or I'm going chocolate peanut butter and covering it with (laughs) all of the unhealthy toppings. Let's go. Oh, man. Yeah. The This is going to probably explain a lot about me. So uh, my parents had a slightly evil plan when I was little, which was they really wanted to make my standards for food really, really high. So I wouldn't be like taken in by junk food and snack foods and stuff. So they'd be like, when we give her dessert, it's going to be really good. So we're going to do like a proper chocolate cake, not just the cocoa stuff. There's going to be chocolate in this cake. And then we're going to make the buttercream and and the buttercream is going to be actual buttercream with flavors and stuff. And I was like, this is good. And now I'm out in the world and like nothing can measure up because <laughs> it's like this cake has only cocoa cake and this buttercream <laughs> barely tastes like anything so yeah thanks mm, mom and dad <laughs> yeah instead of making you into someone who only has desserts as a delicacy now you're just an accidental dessert snob yeah now mm-hmm. I, I like I, it's like a tantalus situation i i seek <laughs> the 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 glories of, of hedonism but none of it satisfies me because i know what actual good dessert tastes like <laughs> I had a similar thing when I first was drinking alcohol and stuff. I never touched wine because I was like, ew, gross grape juice, blah. This is correct. Didn't like it at all. Then work sent me to France for a six-month thing when I was still an engineer, and I ordered a pint of beer once, and it cost more than a bottle of wine. And I didn't have much money going around, so I was like, well... I'm just going to make the economical decision to become a wine drinker because you can get a full (laughs) bottle of wine that's considered good for like four euros. That was what I was told when I asked people, hey, how much should I spend on a bottle of wine if I'm trying to bring one to a housewarming party? They're like, oh, just don't go less than three euros. And I was like, what? So that was a really easy decision. Wow, your $8 bottle of wine, please. (laughs) Yeah, like four euro for a full bottle of wine as opposed to like seven euro for a pint of beer. I was like, yeah, I'm going to become a wine drinker. But then the problem was I drank exclusively wine for six months. And then I went back to the U.S. having never had much wine before. And I realized, oh, no, I've become the worst person. (laughs) My standards are so high for taste. And then also my expectations for price are super low that I could have like a $30 bottle of wine and be like, ah, it's terrible. So eventually it wore off. But there was a good couple of months after when I came back where I was just like, oh, I can't do it. (laughs) That's such a funny problem to have. I spent six months in France drinking their $8 wine. And now America's $30 wine can't measure up. Yeah, it was a pretty good first world problem, but still at the same time, it was like, man, I miss having my good and cheap wine. Now I have inferior and way more expensive wine. Would it be literally easier to just order it in bulk from France? I mean, honestly, potentially. That was the other thing is I feel like every now and then, like I would go through the grocery stores and go to the France section and be like, let's see if I recognize any of them. And I'd be like, wait a second, that's not supposed to cost $28. It's supposed to be five. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough. Oh, woe is me. I had such a hard life. Anyway, let's talk about (laughs) myths and Percy Jackson. Let's pick up right where we left off, which is continuing to go down the list of things that the patrons wanted to hear about and I wanted to hear about. Peleus the Guardian Dragon shows up a couple of times, and he's shown up in the story just minimally, and eventually he gets a name. Does he have any sort of backstory, or is it a straight-up PJO thing? I think, so as far as I could find out, 
Paleus the Guardian Dragon is a PJO original. Okay, okay. The concept of Guardian Dragons is not. That right. shows up in a lot of Greek mythology. There are dragons all over the place of various sizes. A lot of them are guarding magical trees and fruits. Like there's one that guards the Garden of the Hesperides, stuff like that. Yeah, Layden even shows up in the PJO books. Yeah, exactly. I think, as far as I can tell, Paleus the Guardian Dragon is a cute little, like, PJO original that makes sense to be the kind of thing that a bunch of nerdy kids wrapped up in the mythology of their parents would do because Peleus is the name of Achilles' father. Oh. So that feels like the kind of thing that they would name a dragon after if they were like, he's going to be so cool and badass and and awesome. So that's pretty funny. But yeah, as far as I can tell, Peleus the guardian dragon is nowhere else. Okay. Like, who knows, you know? Yeah. Maybe he's on a crater vase from the 400s that I haven't found, but you know how it is. <laughs> I'm intrigued to see if anything comes of Peleus because it has entered the space for me, which is just my go-to of like trying to be on top of things and find the secret villains. <laughs> like once someone gets mentioned a couple of times by name, I'm like, ooh. ooh. <laughs> <laughs> They're going right on the conspiracy board. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, I don't know. Yeah. And, you know, I can never rule it out because it's just one of those things where it's like, is this flavor text or is this a seed being planted? <laughs> uh. And there's no in between. So I either look silly or like a genius. So... We'll have to see if anything comes of Peleus, but I would be lying if I said I wasn't a little bit suspicious because he was just like the guardian dragon. And then I don't know if it was in book four. I think it was. It was like, hi, remember the dragon from before? Now he has a name. It's like, (laughs) (laughs) what secret motivations could he possibly be hiding? People get named when they become important. (laughs) So the next thing, this came up briefly, and I'm assuming that it will come up more in book five. So we don't have to go super deep into it because I don't want to get into spoilers territory. But Krios and Hyperion, Luke just briefly mentions to Kronos that they should lead the war instead because Kronos is not necessarily ready for battle. Mm. And at first you think Luke is maybe trying to look out for Kronos and then you realize, oh, Luke doesn't want to become Kronos. Ha ha ha. So I guess just very briefly, what are Krios and Hyperion's deal, aside from Hyperion being the publishing company of the Percy Jackson Oh, yeah. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Krios and Hyperion are both Titans, obviously. They're mm-hmm. in the same generation as Kronos. The thing about the Titans is they don't get all that much detail. Okay. They get brought up in, like, the Theogony and stuff like that. They're sort of in this weird place of... Logically, when you are trying to do Theogony-style world-building out of the family trees of the gods, the gods must have come from somewhere. There must have been a previous generation. And some mythologies will be like, yes, these things just spring into existence. There are primordial deities in Greek mythology that are like that. Gaia, Uranus, Chaos, uh, a lot of the other early ones. Again, this is all stuff that was laid out in Theogony, which was trying to build essentially hard magic world-building out of Folklore. So mm. it's a nightmare and it contradicts a ton of other stuff, but it is one of the earliest sources we have. Hesiod was a contemporary of Homer, so it's one of the earliest written sources that we actually can read. Um, so uh, he basically describes that there was a generation of Titans before the gods, and that's how you get the Kronos and and Zeus and Kronos eating his offspring and, and then Zeus overthrowing him and cutting him into mm-hmm. pieces and banishing the Titans. So the Titans all get named. Most of them don't get anything more than that. Okay. Krios is one of those cases. Krios is a Titan. He has no further characterization or mythology. He's just a guy. Hyperion, there is a little bit more detail. Hyperion is the Titan who is the personification of the sun. Mm-hmm. His name means like most high, basically. And he is the father of Helios, Selene, and Eos, the gods of the sun, moon, and dawn. There's sort of this like question of whether the Titans were ever actually worshipped or if they were just like 
created to sort of explain where the gods that actually were worshipped came from. Hyperion's in this sort of weird space where it's like, Titan of the Sun, it makes sense that one of those would have existed, but it doesn't mean that he was ever actually revered because his children, you know, were the actual gods of the sun, moon, and dawn that actually had like Homeric hymns written about them and actual worship and stuff like that. But yeah, other than that, very little detail. They get overthrown when Zeus leads the Olympians to defeat them, and it all goes great. Okay, yeah. Well, the lack of details, I guess... It is just people haven't written about them as much as opposed to there being a bunch of things written about them and then people failing to remember the Titans. That's <laughs> that uh, that does seem to be the way it works, uh, because it, it really the question of whether these guys were ever actually like functionally worshipped is, you know, something that people have been arguing about. There is, of course, the possibility that like. You know, cultures conquer each other, and oftentimes when a culture conquers another one, their pantheon of gods also conquers the other gods in the stories about him. Uh, so it is possible that, like, maybe Kronos, who has these agricultural themes, ah. uh, the sickle, all that stuff, he could have been some kind of civilization agriculture god. And then the proto-ancient Greeks rolled up and conquered, and it's like, our god is his kid and kicked his ass, and whoa, yeah, we're so good. Oh, interesting. Well, again, this is the kind of theory that it's very easy to sort of come up with. Um, mm. A lot of uh, Indo- European mythologies have the god war, the war between the gods. It happens in a lot of different places. In Greek mythology, it's the gods versus the titans. You get the Asuras versus the devas. You get the Aesir versus the Vanir. It's just a whole thing. It might be a motif. It might be a recurring thing. It might just be the fact that wars happened. And when that happens, you know, and the cultures often kind of subsume each other afterwards, you get stories about that where it's like, yeah, there was this really big war, but we worked it out. It was fine. Don't worry about it. Um, <laughs> or, you know, perhaps existence itself is a giant battlefield and it's represented in this God war. But it uh... it, it varies a lot. People really want there to be some kind of overarching proto-Indo-European pattern that spawned all of this. But the fact is, it's, in my opinion, it's a little bit similar to like the Great Flood myth, which is if your civilizations form in river valleys – You've all probably experienced floods before. Right. (laughs) Doesn't mean there was ever one big flood. It just means that floods happen. You know, so in this case, like the God War. Yeah, yeah. Well, was there was there one big God War that all these people are telling stories about or (laughs) human civilization kind of has a habit of trying to eat itself on the regs. So like Mm -hmm. that's just how we roll, baby. We love to eat ourselves. No, 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 no. We're so tasty. Now, speaking of things eating other things and it being tasty, mm. Compe's monster belt, is that canonical or is that Rick just on a fun time being like, you know what? This monster has other monsters around its waist. Okay. Uh, so Compe is in this interesting position. She doesn't really get that much detail except in one place, which is very convenient for Reardon because it means he doesn't yeah. need to reconcile all these contradictory stories. So, uh as being killed by Zeus in order to free the imprisoned Cyclopses and Hecatonchorae to get their help in overthrowing Kronos. So that part, straight in the book, basically. Super true to form. Yeah. Campe is described physically by the poet Nanus and nobody else, and it's pretty much verbatim how Reardon describes her as this sort of fluid and strange being with a thousand snakes for an ass. So, uh, Oh, interesting. She's sort of described similarly to Typhon in that, you know, sort of humanoid-ish upper part, Lots of snakes for the bottom part, monstrous, just this weird like mashup of critters. Uh, She's also described as earthborn, which typically means the monstrous offspring of Gaia, who had a habit of barfing out monsters whenever the gods got a little too uppity. Um, So (laughs) the idea that Gaia is like a benevolent mother nature is a very funny 
this sort of ties in with the last episode when we were talking about the idea of like, as we moved out of nature, we got more like whimsical and pastoralist about it. Like, ah, the beauty of unspoiled nature. And it's like, nature is pretty horrifying. Like, you know what else is part of unspoiled nature? Parasitic wasps. <laughs> Tornadoes. Yeah. <laughs> it's not all happy, fun, springtime flower meadows. Sometimes horrifying things happen. You know, nature red and tooth and claw and all that. But yes, uh, so she's an earthborn monster offspring of Gaia, standard issue. There seems to have kind of been a stock way to describe like really big scary things. And part of that is bottom half is made of a lot of different stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and none of it is where you expect legs to go. That's the deal. So yeah, Kampe's okay. description is very close to basically the only two sources we have about her. So she's a pretty fun deep pull, but it's nice that there's not much contradictory stuff about her. Yeah. And then she's obviously linked to Briaris, which is something that I wanted to know more about. Is Briaris someone that's mentioned more than once or is it similar to Kampe, where it's just kind of like the one time when Zeus freed Briaris slash the Hecatonkeries, the hundred handed ones? Briaris is a little bit Odd. Uh, he is one of the three Hecatonkeries, uh, the offspring of Uranus and Gaia. Uh, he helps Zeus and the Olympians during the Titanomachy along with the other Hecatonkeri. In the Theogony, Briares is actually rewarded for his efforts by uh, Poseidon gives him one of his daughters to marry. Huh. Yeah. So, like, Briares's name pops up a few times, never really with more details than that. He doesn't really have any other myths. The Hecatonkeries kind of don't show up in the later mythology, which does beg the question, like, where did they go? Did uh, okay. Just kick him back into the pit. But no, with Briaris, it's clearly like, you know, he gets the little Star Wars medal treatment where it's like, thanks <laughs> for your all your help, Chewie. <laughs> get in there. <laughs> the others have names, but he's really the only one that has any acknowledgement after they get name dropped in the Titanomachy. So. And you said there's only three of them? Yeah, there are only three Hecatonkeries. Interesting. Yeah. Greek mythology has this trend where like, the earlier offspring of, like, Uranus and Gaia are all these, like, weird, giant, primordial, like, monstrous beings, even the ones that are friendly. You know, Hecatonkeries, you know, 100 hands, 50 heads. It's a mess, however that looks. Mm-hmm. But then as the generations go down, you know, the Titans are never described as being particularly physically monstrous. And then the gods are, of course, these perfect shining specimens of of gorgeousness and stuff like that. So... Yeah, it's pretty fun. Okay, yeah. I would have to reread book four because Tyson, at least in my mind, made it seem like there was a whole race of them more than just like three. But I guess maybe he never explicitly said it. Maybe I'm just putting that on Tyson. From what I recall in Percy Jackson, it's implied that there were only ever three of them that got named and and Briaris is bummed out because the other two have like faded from history, oh, which is okay. kind of because Briaris is the only one that ever got named twice. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, boy. But uh, the idea that Tyson, a Cyclops, would like look up to Briaris as this pinnacle of strength is pretty cool because, you know, the Hecatonkeries and the early Cyclopses were all trapped in Tartarus together. They would definitely be this sort of like legendary figure of like, yeah, they fought and freed us and we, we fought alongside Zeus and they're so strong and cool. So that, that's like a PJO original, but I think it's a very cool extension of what Reardon had to work from is like, hey, if you take Cyclopses as like a culture... This makes sense, actually. That's really cool. I do like that. So something that happens a little later in the books, we've got Garion and Triple G Ranch. Mm. There are a couple of different things that I was curious about there. I guess first and foremost, is Garion someone that exists outside or is that a PJO? Nope, Garion's real. Uh, Okay. Garion is too weird to have been made up for these books. (laughs) I was Um, gonna say, feels like a pull, but you never know. uh, The whole thing with Garion and Triple G Ranch is lifted almost verbatim from the labors of Heracles. Ah, Labor number 10. Uh, Heracles is sent to acquire his cattle 
Garion is a three-bodied monstrous giant uh, that Heracles fights and kills. That's basically all the details you get. Garion doesn't have a whole lot more going on except his weird gimmick of three bodies. Is the labor also, like they say in the books, is it that he has to clean the stables or? The stables are actually a different one of Heracles' labors. Ah. I think they relocated it to Garion's ranch for narrative efficiency. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) This whole segment is basically just a little Heracles speedrun that he present, but it's pretty fun. In the case of uh, Heracles' labor, the uh, stables housed immortal cows in this one, of course, they house flesh-eating horses, which I think are the mares of Diomedes, which are the only flesh-eating horses I can think of in Greek mythology, but it might just, <laughs> just be... Just a... the first that come to mind. <laughs> yeah, you know, just those fellas. But uh, yeah, Percy redirecting the river is classic Heracles stuff. That is how Heracles did it. Heracles redirected the river with brute force rather than magic water powers, but, mm-hmm. you know, same vibe. Yeah. And I think they reference it in the book that, like, the, the river nymph is like, oh, no, you are not using my river to clean that place yep. again. <laughs> it's yep, like, yep, what yep. you That's exactly what they say. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so that's Garion's whole deal. Also in Triple G Ranch, we have Orthus the dog. Is that something? Yes, Orthus slash Orthrus is a two-headed dog and brother of Kerberos, who guards the cattle of Garion and is killed by Heracles. So, ah. yeah, this is just a whole thing. Uh, in fact, Eurytion, uh, the herdsman and the guard of the cattle of Garion, is also in the same story. Basically, Heracles just shows up and just mows through all the guys that try to stop him. Okay. And that includes Orthrus and Eurytion and then Garion. But yeah, Eurytion, uh, he's just a herdsman and guard of the cattle of Garion. He has no further details. Yeah, he's killed by Heracles. Um, and... Uh, they do a lot with him in the book that is not from the mythology. The idea that he's a child of Ares is an original. Again, uh, Reardon kind of gets away with a lot by the fact that there are just a ton of demigods rattling around in Greek mythology, and some of them become immortal for various reasons. And in this case, the idea that Eurytion was just a son of Ares who decided to become immortal and ended up working for Garion was just like, yeah, it makes sense. You know, that may as well have happened. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting because there is such an ominous quote from Eurytion who shout out to me pronouncing him as Eurytian for five episodes worth of... That could totally be correct. I'm... I think <laughs> you're right because I think it, it's the fun phenomenon where I record a bunch of episodes and then they start releasing and people are like, oh, by the way, you've said it wrong. And then it's like, oh, cool. I've recorded five episodes ahead of this one. <laughs> oh, I don't nice, know. I, nice, the, nice, the nice. The T-I-O-N ending being pronounced like that is very much an Englishism. Uh, it could be Yuri Tion or something, but I, I have no idea. I just feel like all these books should come with pronunciation guides. There was <laughs> one character where they explained the pronunciation in book four. And I was like, why have we not been doing this for every character? Did they do that with Kampe? Kampe, they just have the carrot over the E. Oh, but yeah. I think it's Ojigia. Percy explains like, it's said like this. Oh. And I'm like, why have we not been doing this for every person? It should just be a thing in the back of these books. Like, save some of the pages where you're promoting <laughs> the next book or whatever. But like one of the pages in the back should just be like pronunciation guide with me percy jackson mm-hmm. i know there's a separate like percy gods book thing but like i would appreciate in the back of the book a little pronunciation guide i think that would be very nice and helpful especially for children you know <laughs> the main audience uh, it's fine it's fine what child wants to look at a, a phonetic spelling <laughs> i can only imagine parents getting oh yeah the phonetic spellings my goodness i i see those and i'm like cool also not helpful yeah it's like that's not english anymore <laughs> oh an upside down e with a dot over it yeah i know what that means yeah (laughs) i think 
they should have it like spelled out, you know, but I can only imagine a 12 year old reading this book and then showing this to their parent and then their mom being like, I don't know, man. <laughs> Trying to read it aloud like, uh, yeah. I, I sometimes catch flack for this because whenever somebody's like, how do you pronounce this character name? I'll be like, this syllable rhymes with this, the syllable rhymes with that. Like, you know, the way that they can actually read it and be like, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. I'll get people to be like, how dare you not use the official EPA, whatever the f- no, yeah, no one knows how to use it. I mean, some people know how to use it, but I'm convinced no one knows actually yeah. how to use it. They're, everyone just make it up and be like, that's what that's what it means. Yeah, baby. Yeah. Okay. Because, yeah, Eurytian slash Eurytian, he slash however you say his name, says, last time I uh, did him a favor, a little trick he wanted to play on my dad, Ares and Aphrodite. He gave me that chain in gratitude. This is talking about Hephaestus. Right. Said if I ever needed to find him, the disc would lead me to his forges, but only once. So if that's just like straight up, Uncle Rick spitting. That's fun. I think it is. I couldn't find any additional references to Eurasian. Now I'm overthinking it. Doing now anything. we're all <laughs> never gonna get it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I I couldn't find any other references to him doing anything, but the reference to like little trick he wanted to play on my dad and Aphrodite is like there's a very iconic myth called variations of like the golden net where uh, Hephaestus. Actually, I have a video about this. Uh, <laughs> so nice. check that out. We'll link it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Basically, Hephaestus catches wind of the fact that Ares and Aphrodite are sleeping together, which is a no-no because Aphrodite is his wife. He claims he's going off on a business trip, hides in the bushes. Ares immediately shows up and they start boning. But fortunately, Hephaestus has arranged for a trap, a net of fine golden chains that just appears out of nowhere and ties them both up. And then he comes and calls all the gods to point and laugh. The myth after that kind of just gets into like Hephaestus tries to get a divorce. Poseidon convinces him not to. That's the end. Mm. <laughs> um, but uh, it, it gets referenced a couple times in the PJO books too, as well. But like, oh yeah, that one time that Ares and Aphrodite got all yeah. netted up. So I think this is just that. It's like, yeah, you know, oh, Hephaestus. Yeah, okay. Just Hephaestus would have gotten help from somebody, and that makes it a convenient way for the heroes to find Hephaestus. So I, I think that's the vibe. Okay. The final thing from Triple G Ranch that I was wondering about was the Hippolectrions. Yes. What is up with those folks? So. As far as anyone can tell, there aren't any stories about these guys. However, they're an art motif. This is a part of Greek mythology that kind of gets overlooked a lot because it's more convenient to just find the written down versions and be like, this is the story of that. This is the story of that. But like they had a ton of art, a lot of crater vases, a lot of visual motifs, like the myth of Actaeon. uh, There's just an entire like online database of every single visual reference to the myth of Actaeon that you can find on like crater vases. It's bananas. And the actual story is written down like twice, but it's there. So the Hippolectrians, which are front part horse, back part rooster. Mm -hmm. Super normal. Yeah. They just only ever show up as like an art thing. Like they'll show up on crater vases with people riding them and stuff like that. No idea what their deal is. Because they can't even say, like, Poseidon made these as a funny joke. Like, nobody writes anything about them. So nobody knows what the vibe with them is supposed to be. Yeah, they're uh, they're a thing, but not much of one. Are they horse-sized or rooster-sized? Because those are very different (laughs) sized animals to be a half and half. Tiny horse would be so goofy, but I think the implication is that they are horse-sized because you see people riding them sometimes. Okay. And when you say crater vase, do you mean like these things are just painted onto old vases? 
Yeah, crater vase is a word for the type of vase. It's K-R-A-T-E-R. Okay. It, there's just a ton of vase work from that era that was decorated with figures and scenes from mythology and characters, sometimes little names labeled on to tell you who's who. It's great. Oh, nice. I love it. I love it. <laughs> yeah, so you will sometimes get like vases that are showing like the death of this character or the abduction of this character or the marriage of this character, which is often the same thing. Um, oh, and, no. Uh, <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, it only goes well. <laughs> but you also get, you know, gods and characters and monsters sometimes. Uh, so like there's a, an illustration, pretty much the one illustration of Typhon that we have from that era is from a crater vase, you know, that sort of thing. Interesting. Yeah. And there's so much pottery. So like it all kind of, you know, <laughs> it, it's the easiest thing that people can have displays of. I am excited to, in the future, go to some sort of museum because I have, as I grow older, I've become more fond of museums. I used to just like to go and make fun of art because I was oh, a yeah, little yeah, teenage boy and I thought it was hilarious. Then as I got older, I would just like appreciate the art, but not necessarily like read the stuff. You know what I love doing now? Reading blurbs at museums. So good. <laughs> it's so good. Oh, man. It's so good. So I feel yeah. like now I would love to go to the pottery section, the antiquity section, because I'm I'm not fully there appreciating that stuff yet. Like I can see right. art and I'm like, that's really cool or anything that's painted or even going and seeing like old school, like fashion, I think is awesome. Mm. But for whatever reason, I just see like bowls and plates and stuff. And I'm like, man, this could have just been like someone's Ikea stuff. Like, how do we know this is cool? But if there's yeah. stuff that has intricate paintings on it and then I recognize some of these stories, I think that could be pretty cool. It's pretty nifty when, when you like can actually clock what you're looking at. It's like, oh, that's wow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I had a weird moment. I was in the uh, New York Public Library and they have this collection of just like treasures. And one of them is like Hygienis's Astronomica, like one of only three extant copies in the world. And I had just finished a video about the myth of Ursa Major <gasps> and I used that book as a reference. I'd like found a digitized copy online and gone to the correct page. And I was like, oh my God, it's here, but it's open to the wrong constellation. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, it was pretty wild. But yeah, I think museums are more fun when you have the actual context for it. I'm lucky enough that my mom is like this buckwild treasure trove of information about just the entire history of the world of art and all the techniques involved. So like going to a museum with her is simultaneously very cool and an absolute chore because it'll be <laughs> like, oh, look at the pointillism on this one painting. Look, if you get really close, you can see all the details. And I'm like, we've been here for three hours and we're still on the first floor. Yeah. <laughs> can we please move faster? Yeah. My proficiency of getting through museums has certainly taken a hit now that I enjoy reading the blurbs. <laughs> I'm a slow museum goer now and I used to be in and out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, that's why sometimes a modern art museum is nice because there is very short blurbs that they're like, I don't know, this guy was vibing. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, because I like my, my ability to appreciate museums is slowly increasing, but a lot of it is like, wow, the technique on this, the complexity, the, the beautiful use of light and shadow. And then I'll enter the modern wing and it's like, look at that. It's an engine block that somebody threw at a brick wall. And I'm like, wow, the technique involved so cool i don't know I'm, I'm that guy i'm i'm that basic person who's like modern art is stupid but like i'm not apologizing i'm to the Whatever. point with modern art museums where i feel like i can appreciate the ones that are cool and then i can see the ones that are not for me i don't have to make a stink about it it's like now we're like i feel like it was such a thing at least for folks my age in high school to be like, oh, you can't associate with anyone who likes Nickelback because Nickelback is bad. It's like, <laughs> look, sometimes people like Nickelback and it's okay. You don't have to worry about it. I think it's the same thing for me with modern art. If I see one and I'm like, that's cool, then I like it. Or I'll see ones that are, I'm just like, that's not for me. There was one that was in the MoMA. I remember as a kid, this would always be like the one that made me so angry. It was just like <laughs> eight 
big rectangular canvases just painted solid colors and it was like like red orange yellow green blue indigo violet and then brown or something yeah and the exhibit was just called color and i was like that's nothing like that is nothing (laughs) you can't just do that but now if i saw that in a museum i'd just be like all right someone probably likes it but not for me i will walk on and see a jackson pollock which i think is cool throwing paint at a rectangle let's go sign me up hell yeah I felt the same way about those solid block color paintings until I saw someone point out how actually hard it is to get paint to look that smooth on a canvas. Oh, you're right. Yeah. And to like mix the same shade of color more than once, it's nearly impossible. I took a class on like art materials and preservation, which was extremely fun. Very hard for me to get through for ADHD purposes. It was like once a week, three hours straight. And I was just like, oh, I can't do this. It was talking about like when you try to repair damage to a painting, it's almost impossible to like mix the same shade of color that was used in the spot that needs patching. Oh, right. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so just like from a material standpoint, you know, you can actually get a lot out of that. But if you're looking at it, it's like, yep, that's a color. And then you move on. Also, for the record, Nickelback's How You Remind Me slaps and anyone can fight <laughs> that, me on yeah, that. that. Yeah, that's the best one. That was just the dun, dun, dun. Yeah, it's, it's really head good. head banging, yeah, bro. Yeah, I just like, I get that we're all snarky when we're younger, but now it's just like, I can't imagine wasting time being angry at someone for liking something yeah. unless they're like doing bad things like if they're doing bad things yeah. like nickelback's just making music just like i don't know man look at this photograph just let it like let him do it let him <laughs> let him sing it uh, it's just they're not hurting anyone and yeah. if nickelback is horrible no. people i retract all of this but i <laughs> no, feel like <laughs> my understanding is that they're just making music yeah <laughs> i think that there's a lot of benefit to like artistic criticism of like you know what were they trying to do here did it work did it not work but like that's completely different from like hey if you like this, you're stupid. And, right. you know, one of them has artistic merit and teaches you something. And the other one is just a way to bully people and feel justified. So, you know. There was a Google Chrome extension where it would find your Facebook friends who had liked Nickelback on Facebook and unfriend them. Like, what? I get that's a funny <laughs> joke. But as far as like a thing that a human being would actually do, that is bizarre. Yeah. I feel like that's that's approaching touch grass levels of. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, maybe just, just do anything online. else. You know, all the time that you spend hating this thing you could spend not worrying about it (laughs) yeah you could just do things you like actually uh, not to get but like that's how i feel about like all the like anti-trans stuff it's like you know what you could do just like not worry about these people and that would actually be mind your business it is wild (laughs) that in 2023 like the most hip and with it thing you can do is just like leave people alone yeah (laughs) staying in your lane the hot new trend for the new year (laughs) it's so funny that the key to like being accepting and a nice person it's just like just let people be themselves it's anyway now that we're very much on task this is a perfect time for us trans rights (laughs) anyway this is yeah happy june yeah this comes out in june happy yay pride month month. Uh, (laughs) and now all the one-star reviews will flood in because people think that this is somehow political being nice to humans but uh. let's take a break here for the <laughs> mid-roll break, the mithril break, as we will discuss things going on with the show and stuff like that. And then we'll be back after a short break. Hello and welcome to the Mithril Break, coming to you live from the Shubio here in New York. You may have noticed that there is more sound dampening this time around because I'm slowly fleshing out the soundproofing in this studio. Ah, it's all very exciting. There's very exciting things happening with the podcast, so let's talk about those exciting things. Just a reminder, if you are listening to this, the week it came out, that means I'm getting ready to be on tour, baby. I'm coming to a city near you if you live in the Midwest in the United States, or if you live in Canada, potentially, because on June 14th, I will be in Cleveland. On June 16th, 
I will be in Detroit. And on June 18th, I will be in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. For the Cleveland and Detroit shows, I'll be joined by Eric Hamilton Schneider. We will be covering, I believe, chapters 13, 14-ish. I'm going to make a social media post. So head on over to at Olympian on Twitter or Instagram to see exactly what chapters it is. I'm quite far ahead in the reading. So I'm just trying to get a sense of what makes sense for the live shows. I'm trying to record a bunch of stuff before I go on tour so that it's not just a whole slew of live show episodes in a row, trying to get those alternating sounds in your ears. And then the Toronto show, I will be joined by Kelly Schubert. It will be very fun. Tickets are live at thenewestolympian.com slash live. And then later in the year, we'll be in Hartford, Connecticut, Chicago, Illinois, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and Minneapolis slash St. Paul, Minnesota. Tickets for all those shows are live at thenewestolympian.com slash live. The tickets for DC, Philly, New York are not live yet, but whenever they are live, I will let you know. So follow us on social media. That's the place where I will first post about those once the tickets are live. I also want to thank everyone who came to the Hades stream, whether you watched it live or you watched it after the fact. Stephen Parra and I did a very fun Hades stream and the chat made it super exciting. We had the chat messing with us to make our playing lives quite difficult in Hades, the video game. I did two runs. Steven did two runs. You'll have to see how we fared by going to the newsolympian.com slash Patreon and watching. You can watch the replay, which has the full chat replay, so you can see what boons the chat picked for us. It was a silly time. It was a goofy time. We got into interesting discussions while the games were going on. I brought blue snacks. It was a fun time, and you can still watch the replay by joining the Patreon at any tier at the newsolympian.com slash Patreon. Speaking of that Patreon, I want to give a shout out to the folks who have joined the Patreon most recently. So shout out to our newest mega god tier patron, Argus Fallen. Shout out to our newest super god tier patrons, Alyssa Roberts and Angels Look Like What. Shout out to our newest god tier patrons, Katie Rose, Daniel, Hamilton Drost, and Sally Rendleman. And shout out to our newest demigod tier patrons, Lav, Isaac Poseidon, Thomas Lucian, Kata, and Claire Aft. Thank you all so much for your support. May Hestia bless you in that you light candles well and that you don't have the situation where you got the flame over the wick and it doesn't light and then the match is really getting close to your fingers and now you're getting scared. Oh no, and I gotta light a new match. She makes sure that you're lighting your candles just so perfectly. Now, if you're all caught up on the news Olympian and you're looking for some new content to listen to, you should go to the Patreon because there is a whole bunch of content that I'm putting up audio and video. So there's been a whole bunch of bonus audio recently. I've been going through the backlog of bonus clips that get edited out. I also recorded a bunch of director's commentaries where I gave behind the scene peeks at what happened at all of the live shows across Europe. There were some very interesting stories, some really strange green rooms, some really bizarre circumstances. So I did a whole bunch of director's commentary audio about that. And then this week I will be posting a bonus episode where I will be reviewing the different covers of the fourth book in the series Battle of the Labyrinth. It's rare video content from TNO, but basically I just go on Google Images and I look at all the different covers for the old editions, the new editions, the European editions, the graphic novel editions, and I just give my thoughts. And it's a fun time because some of those covers are bizarre. I've done that for every book of thus far, and I'm posting the one for book four soon. It's going to be a good time. Check it out. And you can see that and listen to all the other stuff and see all the other great content that we put up on Patreon at thenewsolympian.com slash Patreon. Now, before we wrap up here, you're going to hear words from a few sponsors who make it feasible for me to be a full-time podcaster. Some of those ads will be read by me. Others of them won't. The ones that are not read by me are inserted locally. So if you live in Cleveland, don't be surprised if you hear an ad about the show, because sometimes those ads are me saying, hey, come to the show. So you might hear that in addition to the other ads. Come through. It's going to be fun. And once those ads are complete, we'll get back to this episode of The New Olympian. Now, let me tell you about some sponsors for this episode. Our sponsor for this episode is Athletic Greens. When we're talking about mythology, we're talking about a lot of things that are green and 
and bad. And by that, I mean lots of things have snakes, and snakes just kind of stereotypically are green when you draw them. You think of a drawn snake, you're like, ah, oh, yeah, green and squiggly. That's not a good thing that is green. What is a good thing that is green? Athletic greens. I started taking athletic greens a while ago. I have a new shipment of athletic greens on the way, and I'm very excited to have more of it because, as I've mentioned, going back on tour, love having this stuff for when I travel. The travel pack's super convenient. They do not take up a lot of space. You can pour them into a shaker bottle and shake it up. You can put it into a glass of water and stir it up. Works really easily, and it's really nice for me to be able to get my vitamins and minerals in for the day because on tour, whether I'm actively traveling or doing a show, sometimes it's a little tricky to get those vitamins and minerals the way that I normally get them, which is by eating well-balanced meals. Uh, so I like having Athletic Greens when I am on the road. Athletic Greens is lifestyle-friendly. Whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free, you are covered, and it contains less than one gram of sugar, and it's got no nasty chemicals or artificial anything. I'm not the only person that likes it. They've got a whole bunch of five-star reviews, over 7,000 of them. So if you want to join all of the folks who really enjoy it so much so that they leave reviews, who even does that anymore? Some people do. A lot, of, at least 7,000 do that for Athletic Greens. You can check them out right now. Now, if you want to arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition, you can do so with Athletic Greens. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash newestolympian. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash newestolympian to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. So snakes, bad. Athletic Greens, good. Check out Athletic Greens today. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games. And now we are back. We can continue to talk about myths. We are almost done with book four, and then we'll get into the demigod files. But Woo! one of the things that shows up in book four that I was very intrigued by, the telekines, or however you pronounce them. What's up with yeah. our interesting demon dog friends? Yeah, so they're a little bit weird. Uh, they're another one that doesn't get much precise detail, but they do get referenced a few different times. Telekines are uh, mentioned in uh, Deodorus Sicilus? Sicilus? He wrote a biblioteca. Uh, you know, a lot of those guys did. And uh, they're described there as the first inhabitants of the island of Rhodes. Uh, and they, in this version, actually helped, like, raise Poseidon, which is pretty weird and interesting. They figured out arts that were useful to humanity. They were the first people to make statues to the gods, which is, again, pretty neat. This is a myth that sort of feels like it's overlapping with some kind of historical record of, like, there were people on Rhodes who were worshipping these gods before us, and this is who they were. This text also describes them as wizards who could change the weather. So that's another fairly Whoa. common thing of like, yeah, yeah, pretty rad stuff. Uh, no mention of them being weird dog guys in this one, except you do get this referenced in um, Eustathus's story on Homer uh, story, well, book, uh, which is talking about the telekines or telekines. And he describes them as beings with fish fins for hands. 
But he also says that they were once the hounds of Acteon that were turned into men. Okay. So I think that Reardon basically took all these extremely conflicting things and were like, okay, dog men with flippers. Got it? (laughs) Um, Yeah, I do not envy the job of whoever is in charge of deciding what they look like for the TV show. It'll either be the most fun opportunity because it's like, yeah, let's make this work. Mm -hmm. Or it'll be very stressful of like, how do I make this work? Yeah. The general vibe of them is that they aren't super well liked. Uh, Their description in the Bibliotheca does kind of make it seem like, oh, they were like the precursors to us who worshipped our gods. But like, it doesn't really seem like they liked them all that much. Mm. And generally anyone described as a wizard in folklore is probably not like a good guy. (laughs) It's deeply unfair. But the implication is kind of that they're like like some kind of primordial precursor to real civilization and like mm, okay. uh, the potential like origin, like the place that maybe Poseidon was first worshipped or something like that, which is pretty cool. But yeah, the general vibe is that they're not great. Okay. Uh, so making them into sort of like, yeah, weird primeval monsters that are siding with the Titans. It's not a huge stretch. It's not strictly accurate to the mythology. But again, it's a pretty reasonable extrapolation. OK. All right. Makes sense. Final book four thing. Our good friend Antaeus shows up and he has cool yeah. tattoos and even has tattoos on his teeth. What's up with Antaeus? Antaeus is another one of the labors of Heracles. Ah. Uh, transplanted. Uh, he's a son of Poseidon and Gaia. Uh, so he's like demigod, but the other half is not mortal. It's primordial Titan thingy. Mm-hmm. So he's, he's bad news. He kills people by wrestling them. And uh, Heracles kills him by lifting him into the air and crushing him with his brute strength because the myth about Antaeus is that he becomes stronger when he's touching the earth. Okay, similar to what happens in BJO. Yeah, so Reardon basically takes that and extrapolates it a little bit into like, okay, well, let's go with this. He's he's a demigod, but he's also essentially a monster. He's the offspring of Gaia. So presumably like a monster, he can, you know, he can heal, regenerate, come back. So the interpretation that Reardon comes up with, I like a lot because it matches up with the world building that he's already done of like monsters just come back sometimes Mm -hmm. but they sort of like reform out of sand or they dissolve into sand and hey in the case of this guy who's the direct offspring of Gaia maybe she just doesn't let him die when when she can help it so yeah okay yeah I didn't think of it that way that it is kind of taking something from mythology and then playing with it in the space that he's already created because yeah they always talk about the monsters dissolving into dust and Mm -hmm. yeah if your mom is Gaia then why can't that dust immediately heal you as opposed to you know just be the way that you vanish that's really cool and I never thought of it that way yeah it's a very smooth bit of world building and it's another case where like this is a problem that Heracles solved by being really strong and Percy solves by doing the same thing but in a less super strong way. Yeah, right. Not just crushing. You got to get a little crafty. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm not entirely sure what Antaeus's visual design is derived from. I think maybe it was a little bit like hey, you know what's a cool aesthetic for this guy? Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Uh, (laughs) Like, I don't know. I'm not objecting. I think it's pretty fun. Yeah, no, (laughs) Um, it's fun. I, I enjoy it quite a bit. I thought he was one of the cooler described characters with a fun visual aesthetic. And if that's just Rick coming up with stuff, that's fun. Yeah, no complaints here. Okay, so now we can move on to the Demigod Files. Not as many things, but still some very interesting things. First and foremost, Persephone shows up for the true first time in this story. And she is interesting in that she's kind of rude. And my only previous experience with Persephone is that she was nice and wonderful in Hades, the video game, and then Hades town. So Persephone, what is her deal like in the mythology? Are some things nice? Are sometimes they mean? Yeah, 
that's pretty much accurate. Persephone is in this very odd space. Uh, I did a lot of research in this. This again, it fortunately has another deep dive video that I've done trying to just get a feel for the myth of Hades and Persephone because it's, oh boy, everybody loves retelling it and there are so many versions and a lot of people also like being like, this is the correct one and that's never correct. But uh, Persephone is in this odd space where she is referred to as Kore, the maiden. She's, you know, happy, fun, flower child, goddess of spring. And then also she is... Dread Persephone, goddess of the underworld, and often spoken of with more reverence and fear than her husband Hades, for reasons that aren't really clear in the mythology, but are definitely present. She also had mystery cults about her, which mm. is essentially a religious worship that does not document its secret rituals or its beliefs. It just, you know, it's got like the stuff that everybody knows and then the stuff you only learn when you're in the cult and that stuff never got written down. Mm. So basically in part of the weirdness, there is this goddess called Despoina, who is the daughter of Demeter. And uh, she's veiled and there was a mystery cult about her where you don't learn her true name until you're initiated. And oh. I mean, Despoina is Persephone, right? Like, come on. <laughs> um, <laughs> Despoina is a title. It just means the mistress. Kore is a title. It just means the maiden. Persephone had a bit of a habit of being referred to as things that were not her name. Okay, okay. And there was this kind of thing in Greek mythology, especially with the Chthonic deities, where it's like, if you're calling them by name, you better be okay with them answering. <laughs> um, All right. Persephone is in this odd situation where it's like, we have stories about her and the stories are all pretty chill for the most part. She also was definitely really, really scary. So like, what was up with that? And we don't know because that part didn't get documented very much, but like, it's pretty clear. In the second century, um, Pausanias uh, wrote some stuff about Demeter. And in his version, Demeter had two daughters, Kore and Despoina. And it's like, oh, well, obviously, Corey is Persephone. We already know that. Corey gets referred to as Persephone all the time. And it's like, yeah, but like, you know, <laughs> Despoina is also very definitely Persephone. So Persephone is really, really weird. She's a case where it's like there's just an infinite rabbit hole of stuff. And the idea that she has both a nice side and a mean side is like, Probably the simplest possible way yeah. that that could be characterized is like, yeah, yeah, this is Kore is sweet and kind and springtime and stuff like that. And then, you know, people will go into the underworld. And oftentimes Persephone is like the voice of compassion in the underworld. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's not like she's cruel. She kind of usually has Hades to be kind of like, these are the rules and we're going to follow them. And the Persephone will be like, no, 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 let's hear them out. So there are a couple different cases of people who come to the underworld and essentially make a plea for like mercy and Persephone will be the one who grants it. Also, Hades and Persephone are in this odd space where when uh, in the Homeric hymn to Demeter, when the story of the abduction is told, Hades explicitly says like, hey, you know, I'm sorry about the whole abduction thing, but you're going to be my queen. You're going to be my equal. You know, you're going to rule alongside me. We're going to both be in command of the underworld. And this is very unusual in Greek mythology mm. where, you know, gods will be married, but they won't co-own their, you know, Zeus is the head god. Hera is his wife. She's the queen of the gods, but she's not the king of the gods, you know, sure. like, so the idea that Zeus, uh, the Hades and Persephone are in this actual sort of equal relationship is like canonically stated in the hymn to Demeter. So like, that's very unusual. And it kind of explains why Persephone has so much power in the underworld. She's not just like the trophy spouse. She's actually kind of running it. Uh, in the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice, Orpheus goes into the underworld to try and get Eurydice back, and he makes the plea, and Hades is not interested, but he plays music, and the music is so beautiful that it moves Persephone, 
and she convinces Hades to give them a chance. And that's how Orpheus gets to try to lead Eurydice out of the underworld, even though it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And I believe the myth of Sisyphus also factors into this oh. because he captures death for a while. I know this is also on the list <laughs> yeah, of things. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. Um, so Sisyphus captures uh, the personification of death, Thanatos. In some versions, he actually captures uh, Hades himself, but mostly it's just, the important thing is he captures death and chains him up with the, the chains that Thanatos brought to try and capture him and like stuffs him in a box and nobody on earth dies. And the gods notice and <laughs> Ares notices and gets pissed because he's like, well, what's the point of war if nobody's getting murdered about it? <laughs> Finds Thanatos, breaks him out, and Sisyphus gets in huge trouble with the gods for that. So he gets dragged down to the underworld. So he basically, he like knows that consequences are coming for him. So he's like, okay, my beloved wife, here's what you need to do. When I die, you need to yeet my body into the road. And like, don't give me any of my like funeral whatever. And she's like, are you kidding me? She, he's like, no, you have to promise me. And she's like, okay. Uh, so when he dies, she like throws him out into the street. And then when he dies, he's like, oh, Lady Persephone, it's simply awful. Look at the abysmal treatment my wife has given me. I haven't had any funeral rights. This sucks. Can you send me back to like haunt her? And Persephone's like, wow, yeah, that sucks. <laughs> Sends him back. And he like lives out a bunch more years because he just pops back into his body and keeps walking around. Uh, so when he dies for real, Everyone is very, very angry, especially Persephone, because mm. he basically tricked her and, and, you know, prevailed upon her compassion, which is why he's punished with what he is in the underworld, because it's like, all right, smart guy, you want to keep fighting the inevitable, have fun with gravity. So that's the deal with that. So Persephone is yeah, a complicated figure, much more complicated than her husband, who's just kind of a dude doing his job most of the time. Yeah, it makes sense with how the myth was described in the story, because pretty accurate, pretty true to form. But then also, yeah, I think it's interesting going back to Persephone because it does seem like she has a different dynamic with Hades than there is with Hera. And talking about Hera, it did remind me that there was another question that I forgot to ask with Book 4 stuff. Hmm. There's a point in the book where they mention that Hera likes to tell the version where Zeus threw Hephaestus off of Olympus. Ah. And then there's the whole thing of, oh, no, well, there's actually some people think Hera did it. Is that actually something that exists in mythology where there's stories about yes. both? Oh, OK, cool. <laughs> Not only are there stories about both, both versions are told in the Iliad. Ah. Um, yeah. So, whoops. Uh, so basically, the, the one consistent thing about Hephaestus, at least in most of his characterization, is that he is physically disabled. Mm -hmm. He often is portrayed with like kind of withered legs or like, you know, crutches and stuff like that. He's a little bit messed up, basically. So there is a version of the story where Hera gives birth to this baby and she sees that he's like kind of messed up and she's like, oh, whatever, and yeets him off Olympus and he gets all banged up on the way down. And then there's versions where Hera and Zeus are having some kind of like physical confrontation and Hephaestus tries to intercede to protect Hera and Zeus like boots him off Olympus. The funniest possible interpretation is that both of these things have happened. Oh no. <laughs> Hephaestus just keeps getting yoked. Oh no. But no, so, so basically it's, Purposefully unclear, there are also versions where Hephaestus is just born disabled, mm. and that's just how he is. Like, if there was no injury that caused it, it's just how he is. There's no clear canon. Each different version has, you know, support for it. And the fact that in the Iliad, both versions of the story are told is like, oh, okay, so, you know, who knows? Basically, Reardon just, like, picked one and was like, yeah, that's going to be the one that we're going to go with, which is perfectly fine. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah, okay. Now, one brief thing that I forgot to send you in advance, but there's a reference in the Demigod Files where Nico complains that Persephone turned him into a dandelion. 
is that <laughs> a nod to anything or is, is that actually, okay yeah what's... i know this one off the top of my head so uh <laughs> there is a myth about a nymph named minthy who uh tries to seduce hades and persephone gets so mad that she tramples her underfoot and turns her into a mint plant okay so persephone has a documented habit of turning people who displease her into plants okay. and it's very funny that she did that to nico that's good that's good a dandelion the sunniest of flowers mm -hmm. it's perfect oh, that's it's so, funny. so perfect i really hope that that becomes some sort of spinoff story i want to know exactly what happened there there's so <laughs> many things that just get referenced that i want to learn more about and that's pretty high on the list so Back to some of the Demigod Files folks that are quite important. This is one I'm really excited to learn more about because she will be the main character in Hades Video Game 2. What's up with Melano slash however you say her name? Because I've gotten yeah. conflicting reports on how to pronounce it. My guess would be Melanoe. Okay. So she's interested. She actually has an Orphic hymn dedicated to her. Uh, mm. The hymns are always very useful because they are just gold mines of information and they were you know, religious things. So, like, they, they give us some indication of, like, how this god was actually perceived by their worshippers. So, uh, Melanoe has a hymn that actually gives us a bunch of details, uh, including, I found out why she's wearing yellow in <gasps> Hades 2. Uh, oh. One of the only details about her is that she is saffron-cloaked. So, ah. she's... Yeah, so yeah, that means she's wearing yellow. And she is the uh, alleged offspring of Persephone, who Zeus seduced in the form of Hades. So that's bad. Uh, like Zeus pretended to be Hades? To be Hades, yeah, yeah. So, but here's oh, the thing, here's the thing. Whoa, big face-off vibes. <laughs> yeah, except here's the thing. Uh, this gets complicated because Hades is sometimes called the Zeus of the underworld. Okay. And Hades and Zeus are sometimes syncretized together. So the fact that Persephone has a child with Zeus pretending to be Hades or Zeus as Hades or whatever... It is possible that there are versions of this story where it is Hades. Mm. Again, this is how flexible this stuff can get. Uh, the Orphic Hymn does not make that claim. It, it's like, yeah, Zeus connived to take the form of Hades and slept with Persephone and she got pissed about it. But there are versions of this. So the reason that in Hades' game, she is definitely the offspring of Persephone and Hades. No Zeus involved. She, she's got the look. Mm -hmm. They went with the less f***ed up version, which I approve of. And I, I like that. I think they basically did the same thing with Zagreus. When I looked him up, I believe he was also in kind of the same boat as like, there's like one attestation of him yeah. ever. Mm -hmm. This is one of those cases where like, if you go looking through the myths about Persephone and Hades, there's no reference to them having children ever. But if you look in the specific cults about these gods, it's like, yes, these are the children of Persephone and Hades. And it's like, what? <laughs> so <laughs> uh, claims I made in that video aged weirdly because like I, I put it out and then like two months later, Hades game came out and everyone's like, what do you mean they don't have kids? Oh, <laughs> it's like, no. well, I didn't know. Yeah, I did hear when it was coming around that it was an interesting thing in mythology and that Zagreus is like not a big deal, which I think is a really oh, he's very smart choice of them to really be able to kind of do whatever they want and not have people well actualing them up and down yeah. for a thing even if they pick someone i don't think you really get to well actually greek mythology since there usually are mm. so <laughs> many different ways i've got a few comment sections that would challenge your claim <laughs> on that but uh so there's a few more details about melanoa she is described as two-bodied mm. doesn't really go into more detail about that but there are Underworld gods, especially after the Romans turned up, you got gods like Janus and certain versions of Hecate that have like multiple bodies, kind of. Okay. So like Hecate often is portrayed as essentially three women standing back to back in a triangle. Oh, cool. And it's all Hecate. Uh, there are versions of Diana, the Roman equivalent, and then syncretized with Artemis, who has the same thing. Before that syncretization, Artemis never has that symbolization. So it's, it's pretty neat. So Melanoe having 
two bodies could mean something like a Janice situation. I like the interpretation of that in uh, Hades game where she's got one eye doing one thing and one eye doing the other. It's like, oh, she's fashionably asymmetrical. And her main gimmick is that she drives mortals to madness with her illusions as unnerving attacks in the gloom of night. Uh, So she was clearly underworld goddess, dark illusory implications, themes of madness. That's pretty standard for Chthonic deities. Yeah, and that's pretty true to form to what she does in the Demigod Files. So makes sense. Yeah. Now, we just have a little bit of time, so I think these probably won't be long answers. The Mermeeks, is there anything more than just scary ants? <laughs> ah, the Mermeekies. It's just the Greek word for ants. There's just one fun detail about it, which is that when uh, Aeacus, his name is weird, A-E-A-C-U-S, uh, he had a shortage of men, and he asked Zeus for help, and Zeus turned some ants into people to help him out, and they became the Myrmidons, which literally just means ant people. <laughs> so that's pretty fun supposedly like some of those like Marco Polo types that wrote about like stuff they definitely totally saw when they were traveling the world was like, yeah, there are giant ants that are guarding a mountain of gold off Mm. in India. And people were like, I want to find the ant hill full of gold. And it's like, good luck. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) so it's like not necessarily a fully Greek myth then. Well, it's a myth from Greece about other places. You know, these guys also had myths about all kinds of places. (laughs) So it's not that weird. Okay. And then final thing that I had sent you, Iapetus? Iapetus, yes. He is similar to the Titans we talked about last time. Uh, Not much in the way of detail. Uh, Iapetus is a Titan. He's the father of more well-known Titans, uh, Atlas, Prometheus, and Epimetheus, and uh, I think one other. He's mentioned in the Iliad as being imprisoned in Tartarus. There is one weird thing about him, which is, it's not exactly about him. It's about later scholarship about him, which is that uh, in like the 17th century, Theologians started theorizing that Iapetus is the same figure as Japheth, son of Noah, from the Bible. Interesting. (laughs) Um, Which would make him the progenitor of a chunk of humanity. And considering that he's the father of Prometheus who created humanity, maybe? But I don't know. That feels like some pseudoscience to me. (laughs) Um, It's got that, like, linguistic extrapolation of, like, they sound the same. So clearly, but, you know, who even knows at that point? But yeah, Iapetus doesn't really have anything interesting about him other than that. You know how it is with Titans. People really want there to be something there. And then to close things out, again, this is another one I forgot to send, so hopefully you know off the top of your head. The Keres? The Keres? The, like, bat ladies? Is that anything? Would you mind spelling that for me? (laughs) K-E-R-E-S. They were in the Demigod Files. They were women that were mostly bats, it felt Mm. like. Percy was like, they're bat women, and then mostly described a bat. All right. Well, good sign here. Uh, They were definitely portrayed on crater vases, so they were for sure a thing. Although, this one just has bird wings, so it kind of looks like a standard harpy. Ah, good. Okay, so they are referenced in the Theogony, uh, which is essentially just a big family tree of gods and stuff. Basically, there are all these like minor spirits that are basically gods in Greek mythology that show up sometimes. So things like the Oneiroi, which are gods of dreams. And basically in the Theogony, it's claimed that almost all of these things are the offspring of Nyx, the goddess of night. Among other things, uh, she also ha- produced Thanatos, who we mentioned before, god of death. Hypnos, God of Sleep, again, if you played Hades game. Oh, yeah, baby, you're speaking my language. <laughs> yeah, but this is also a case where it's like, just, you know, popping out all these gods that are basically just personifications of bad stuff that happens. So it's like death and blame and misery and also the Hesperides, don't worry about it, and the Moirai, the Fates, and the Carries, which are death fates, basically. Oh, okay. So they're this weird sort of like, they're in the same category as a lot of these guys, but also like Nyx also produced the goddess Nemesis of revenge. And 
Eris, goddess of discord. So, you know, just all these figures that are just sort of personifications of bad stuff. But uh, yeah, the Karis are listed there. It seems like they were sort of like battlefield scavenger types. Oh, okay. A little vulture-esque. Yeah. Uh, sometimes they would be represented as little winged sprites in vase paintings. And apparently there were like rites that were intended to keep the carries away. So it's like, these were not great spirits. Like, the, you know, <laughs> death battlefield scavengers. That's not good. You probably don't want them getting their claws in you. Oh, well, this is even more confusing. According to a statement of Stesichorus noted by Eustathius, Stesichorus called the carries by the name Telekines. <laughs> Damn it! <laughs> Whoa! The plot thickens! Ugh, yeah. So, uh, huh. it seems like Karis is also used in some cases to just mean, like, person's fate. So, like, they might choose a fate, and that word is Karis. So, hmm. in the Iliad, when Achilles is given the choice between a long, obscure life or a quick but extremely glorious one, that word that they use is Karis. Huh. Zeus weighs the warrior's Karis to determine who should die. Again, it's like terminology that represents these spirits, but also represents the thing they embody, which is death fate. You know, choose your death, basically. Okay. Oh, okay. But yeah, bad news. Yeah, bad news. Uh, <laughs> wonderful. Well, also bad news. It's the end of this episode. Oh, we're all yeah. sad, but it's okay because the podcast was fun and it cost you zero dollars to listen to it. Now, uh, <laughs> thank you, Red, so much for joining along. This was so fun. These episodes were very helpful and entertaining. Thank you for putting in the research work. Thank you for being on the spot when there were things that I forgot to send you in advance. I very much appreciate it. <laughs> hey, no problem. Wikipedia is free. <laughs> hey. Now, if people want to find you doing stuff beyond the videos that we've linked in the show notes here, or if you want to explain what that channel is, where can people find you doing stuff? Yeah, for the most part, what I do is the YouTube channel Overly Sarcastic Productions, which despite the name is trending towards sincerity in recent years. Uh, Good, we, yay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> We're all growing. Uh, woo! <laughs> I'm not changing the name, though. It's too fun. Oh, uh, and mostly... you got the SEO. You can't, I mean, yeah. it's t- you can never. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The algorithm would punish me fiercely for that. Uh, so mostly uh, the videos are intended to essentially take things that are frequently extremely boring and point out how they are actually fun and cool because I have ADHD and school was a nightmare. So I sort of needed to do this to get through any of it. Let's go. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, the, the truth is that most things are actually very cool and interesting if you can, you know, find the right angle of approach. Even so Nickelback. <laughs> Even Nickelback. Uh, so mostly we just, you know, sort of try to do that. I handle uh, mythology, folklore, and I also have a series called Trope Talk where I sort of dissect stories and try and figure out what makes them tick. Uh, and my channel partner, Blue, does videos about history uh, and probably has a lot more like input about who these actual authors are and how the, you know, and all the stuff where I was like, yeah, you know, the Minoans and the Athenians didn't like each other very much. He actually knows what he's talking about in that dimension. So it's, it's a very important relationship. So those are fun. I have fun with those. I try my best to make them accurate and good, but you know how it is with the Greek mythology. So yeah. <laughs> No, they're great. You're great. This was great. All things were great. Thank you again so much for joining. Thanks for having Listeners, me. Listeners, thank you so much for listening. And yeah, no problem. Happy to have you. And until we continue on where I believe the next episode that people will be hearing will be about book five. It's Whoa. the final book of just the first series. Yeah. Don't worry, there's so many more books. And I now have physical copies of the Heroes of Olympus series. Man, those books are big. Ooh, which at first I was like, oh no. And then I was like, oh yay, more episodes. Or <laughs> I have to go faster. One of the two. Uh-oh. But uh, I'm excited to get into those and we'll have to have you back because I know you have such a spicy history with the Heroes of Olympus books. But Oh, I'm going to have to reread them then. <laughs> 
Hooray! <laughs> only if you watch. Only if you watch. But until we cross paths again, I'll see you later. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Newest Olympian. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Mike Schuber. I also run the social media and the website. Our editor is Sherry Guo. The music is by Bettina Campamanas and Brandon Google, and the art is by Jessica E. Boyd. If you want more TNO in your life, there's a couple different places you can find us. You can find us on social media. We're at Newest Olympian on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We're on Reddit, reddit.com slash r slash The Newest Olympian. And then Patreon has a whole bunch of bonus content at The Newest Olympian.com slash Patreon. Speaking of the Patreon, I'm going to give a shout out to our producer level patrons, our members of the Olympic Court. Kelsey Gillespie, The Damn Steam Nuggets, Vicky Garcia, Ellie Hoskovchova, Veronica Bartova, Haley Hastings, Robin Garcia, Frida Vikstrom, Megan Moon, Craig McRoberts, Taylor Payne, Giselle Salvador, Peter Johnson, The Twins, Sabrina Balsiger, Bony Pony, Heather McMillan, Casey Williams, Polly Burridge, Nikki Harris, Tatiana Schmidt, Sandra Rose, Josh Sayer, Joshua Wilkie, Abby Ryan, Wise Girl, Ashton Gabrielson, Marco Redhouse, Caden Max, Sam Sam Reby, Riley Kittes, Mary Kelly, Audra, Mrs. O'Leary, Rodith Colna, Milo Kim, Fred Cabras, Harlan Crisp, Cece Reads 23, Sandkopf, Julia Kendall, Emil Oscar Thomason, Liz Cardigan, Zachary Hamilton, Sarah Neal, Ricky, John Drillsma, Demigod Nurse, Rayla Matthews, Riley Draken, Lunica Dune, Sky Mallory, Elizabeth Obermiller, Aiden Parziani, Biggest Tyson Fan, Hunter Landstrom, Captain Jack Rackham, and Sky Captain and the Princess. If you want to help out the show in a non-monetary way, you can talk about the podcast. Word of mouth is so huge. Whether you tell someone directly, you know someone who is a PJO fan, or someone who's been looking for an excuse to read the books, you reach out, hey, there's this podcast, TNO, The New Olympian, it's perfect, the host is great and also humble. You would love it, you should check it out. Or you can post about us on social media, or you can leave us a rating and review on whatever podcasting app you're using. All of these things really help. And if you do any of these things, I am so, so thankful. And if you do them in the future, thanks in the future. But I'm just so thankful that you tuned into this episode and I hope you tune into our next episode where we'll be kicking off our coverage of The Last Olympian as we will be joined live in Germany by Kelly Schubert. But until then, I'll see you later. Hey, how's it going? It's me, ASMR Mike. So for this ASMR Mike segment, I'm going to take something that I have here in the Shubio, a little tiny trinket. I have these from my Vine days. They are these little tiny silicone hands that we used to call baby hands, and they're open at the bottom because you can suction them and stuff. So I'm going to try to make some suction noises and see if uh, that will come through on the audio. Now I will rub the uh, microphone windsock cover with the baby hand. And finally, little baby hand taps. Thank you so much for listening. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.